0: This is the 200 Churches Podcast, episode 409.
1: I have allowed way too much comparison, contrast, and competition, those three Cs, to influence my ministry over the last 30 years. And I so wish if I could go back that somebody had told me early on, stop comparing yourself to others. Stop living in contrast to others and definitely stop living in competition with other churches and other pastors, even those within your church. It is such a thief of joy. It's such a thief of identity. Stop trying to be different. Quit comparing yourself or contrasting yourself and let Jesus shine through you. Because in that, you personally as a pastor can be the vibrant expression of Christ as you find your place in his church. Just stop living in that place of comparison, contrast, and competition, because it's about Jesus, not about that anyway.
0: This is the 200 Churches Podcast, ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. And sometimes I like to say either A, they're all small, or B, for pastors of all churches. Thank you for joining me today. My friend today on the podcast is Kurt Trempert. He is the pastor of Harvest Downtown Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He grew up on the mission field. He's got a different perspective than somebody who just, you know, grew up in an American small town and uh, he has lived in America all their life. And I love talking to people from different parts of the world with different perspectives, different upbringings. Kurt is very unique, and he's written a book called Kaleidoscope: How to Help the, Keep the Church from Becoming a Museum. And it's so interesting. Let me give you a little spoiler alert here. He talks about the church being characterized or symbolized by stained glass. You know, we think of stained glass in churches, and stained glass is a bunch of broken pieces of colored glass, and they're and they're frozen in place. They're fixed. And he says, a better symbol for the church is a kaleidoscope. And that the church is not a reflection of the light of Jesus Christ, but a refraction of the light of Jesus Christ. So I've given you just a little bit of a context there. So now when you listen to him, you will hear references to stained glass. And he's moving out the stained glass and moving in this symbol of a kaleidoscope. And you know, kaleidoscopes, I mean, most of us probably haven't looked through one since we were a kid, but as you shift and change, there's always a different angle, always a different refraction of the light coming through. And Kurt uses that theme in his book, Kaleidoscope. Uh, If you don't have it, first off, you have to figure out how to spell kaleidoscope because it's not how it sounds. And then once you can spell it, you find Kurt Trempert on Amazon, and you can purchase the book. It's a fun book to read that has perspectives on a lot of different dynamics found in the church and in church ministry. So with that introduction, let's go right to my conversation with Kurt Trempert. Again, he's the pastor of Harvest Church Downtown in Colorado Springs. Kurt Trempert, hey, so good to have you on the 200 Churches Podcast. Welcome.
1: Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks, Jeff, so much for inviting me um, all the way from Colorado into your opulent and extravagant recording studio.
0: (laughs) And it is. I mean, I'm looking at your digs over there and my digs in this this flamboyant software that we're using that makes us look 10 times better than we really are. You look a lot like Arnold Schwarzenegger did 30 years ago, right now.
1: <laughs> I just saw a picture of Arnold uh, <laughs> just this morning. Yeah, I never looked like that.
0: The Terminator. <laughs> so, your book, Kurt, is Kaleidoscope, keeping yeah. the church from becoming a museum. I like yeah. it. And underneath your name as the author, it says a practitioner. I like that too because I'm, I'm just a dissertation away from finishing my doctor of ministry degree, wow. and I don't think of myself at all as a scholar, but I do think of myself uh, as a practitioner because it, I practice all the time. I'm always practicing, and so are you. So this book, Kurt, we're going to talk about it. But introduce yourself to our listeners, and I do want to tell them that if you want to hear a whole lot more coaching about pastoral ministry and leadership in the local church. You can check that out on the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Weekend edition number 34 is the one that Kurt is going to be on, and that's going to be December 10th, 2022. So Kurt, introduce yourself.
1: Kurt Trempert. I live here in Colorado Springs, pastor of church, been here for 23 years, and have been serving in this church for quite some time. Did not plan on staying for 23 years, uh, but various changes in uh, the ministry here and and the environment context and uh, even in my life for that matter, for whatever reason, God has chosen not to release me from this context for this season. Um, and so just enjoy being here in this context. Married, three kids, all adult children, all married. I uh, got two granddaughters and a grandson due next month, actually in January. So uh, super excited about that. Loving being a grandpa. It's way better than being a dad. Uh, Isn't it
0: though? (laughs) It's like like
1: so great. But anyway, but those are the changes that happen and in our lives and just being able to navigate changing roles, changing shifts in society and the world around us, our family and even my marriage has shifted beautifully. I will, I might add, over the last uh, thirty years that I've been married. So um, yeah, it's been it's good. It's a it's a good experience. As long as we welcome change, it's amazing, and we embrace the change and learn from change, we continue to grow. It's when we dig in our heels and say, "I'm not going to change," that we begin to place ourselves in a position of fragile position. Um, much as stained glass is in a very fragile position, unable to change, unable
0: to move. So, Kurt, this is 200 churches, and we have often been talking about ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. Now, we have to talk about it less these days, but we still do. The size of a church is often a point of of great uh, discouragement to a pastor. And I'm just wondering, what size is your church today? And what's the biggest or smallest it's ever been since you've been the pastor?
1: What are we counting?
0: Yeah, I know. See, that's the other problem. We count differently now. But if you, yeah. I always, I, I always like to say, if everyone were there, if everyone showed up, oh gosh, who even comes? Who even comes once a month? If everyone shows up at the same time, you know, what size of a church would you have?
1: Well, that's a harder question to answer here in Colorado because of how regular church attendance in Colorado is viewed as. Uh, about once every six weeks is considered regular um so you know four to six weeks i should say especially during winter during ski season it's very Hmm. it's very varied dramatically so let me just say when i first got here we were about 70 people 70 to 80 people on a sunday morning and um, now we have oh I'm trying to remember our last attendance. I hardly ever look at it, honestly. So even when I count, so the last time I counted it was cause I was responsible for doing that a couple weeks ago. And so it was, uh, I think it was a hundred and one no, was 95 in one service and, um, not a hundred in this, the other service. And so, yeah. So that gives you an idea of where we are. We have yeah. two services, uh, on our membership we have 220 I think people in our membership and then we have probably oh probably 400 people who call harvest their home church 350 to 400 okay. and it starts getting super mushy when you start getting out there honestly um, we're yeah. down church and so we have a and a very transient community so and I say transient because of the military community here in Caro Springs is coming in and out We have uh, several colleges here in the Springs, and we have a lot of people who think it's a great idea to live in Caro Springs. They get here, they find out the cost of living, they have a hard time uh, finding jobs that will make it possible for them to live here, and then they move on. Um, Plus, there's a lot of people who buy homes in downtown because they're cute little houses in downtown, and then they have uh, children. And they realize that they need another bathroom and then they move out to the suburbs. And so we have a lot of that going on in, in in, the Springs as well. So all that to say, um, we have to, we pretty much lose about 10% every year of people who migrate away from our church. Uh, that leave, that that's, that's not counting the people who get mad at me and leave. That's just talking yeah, about right. the people. <laughs> that's just talking about the people who've moved away. Um, so one year they say 85%. that there's,
0: yeah. They say that every church, on average, there's a fifteen percent attrition mm-hmm. every year for death, move away, mad, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and which means you have to have about a fifteen percent growth rate in order to stay stay even. Yeah, and I'm sure you probably like every church. You know, we had the shift with COVID, mm-hmm. and then kind of a reset of who's in and who's out. And uh, so, but all that to say, Kurt, that you're in a church, not unlike our listeners, you know, a church of around 200, give or take a hundred or two, and you're, you're pretty much right there. And if everybody showed up, maybe you'd have uh, 500 or more people in the room. (laughs) If
1: everybody showed up, we would not get the 500.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, but if you've got 400, they call it home and you've got 200 something members. And i so I've been downplaying this in my mind lately and I talked to a guy from com mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. and he was, he was trying to convince me, Jeff, you've got more than 500 people in your church. If you're averaging in the upper three hundreds on a Sunday morning, you've probably got six to 700 people bumping around your church because mm-hmm. it's just not like it was, you know, it's not like, Seventy-five or eighty percent of your people show up every every weekend, and I started thinking about that, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, he's he's probably right because when I pull up our database, it says uh, seventeen hundred people, but when I pull up the people that are attenders, it says six hundred and something, and yet not all of those people attend regularly, right? And yet not everybody that attends regularly is even in the list. So we've got some work to do with our database. But, Kurt, you wrote this book. When did you write it? So you've been there 23 years. I what's the What's the um, copyright date of the book?
1: 2016 is when I wrote it. I believe the copyright is actually 2017 by the time it got yep. all the edits. Um, so, yeah, 2016, summer of 2016 is when I wrote the book.
0: Okay so you've been around 16 17 years in your church at the time and you're you're talking about keeping the church from becoming a museum uh, were you worried that it was going to become a museum
1: <laughs> um no not at that point i think the church had had gotten to a place of health at you know in 2016 by the time we got there the church has been in health in health um, when I came here, it was definitely um, no. It wasn't at risk of becoming a museum. It was just not. It was a question of whether it was going to survive. You know, that was really. It was just on um, life support when I got here.
0: So, museum would have been a step up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're also talking about the uh, the church at large, right? Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, yeah, In many, a church. Yeah, I'm really speaking more about yeah. I did lowercase church. Because I did, I did, I, I'm didn't, I not prepared to say this is my 95 theses that I'm nailing to the Wittenberg church door. But it's, yeah. it's this idea of saying, hey, the local church, I think, is, for whatever reason, God has chosen to use the local church, right? And I love the church. I, I can't express that enough. And I love the local church. I think that the local church is... Uh, is God's gift to humanity. And I, I deeply, uh, as much as I love the local church, I hesitate to be critical of the local church. But the reality is is that we have to think critically without being critical. And so this is just my attempt at thinking critically about what the local church could be and should be in the context of her community. And um, so I think that the local church has great uh, aspects about her, but I think we've lost our way as the church, capital C church, particularly the Western church. Let me just say everything that I've written here is specifically about the Western church. It's amazing to me at how the Western church has lost her way in many ways. Has lost her, her mandate sold her birthright, if you would, uh, for something else. And we've
0: Kurt, what is the premise of the book? And then how does this this metaphor of kaleidoscope blend with the premise of your book?
1: That's excellent. So the basic premise is that we are not intended to be a reflection of the light of God, but rather to be a refraction of his light. So in other words, here's the premise that Christ dwells in me, And he is the hope of glory. So I have to let Christ shine through me, his workmanship, his craftsmanship, and let him shine through me. Taking that a step further, that just makes me one shard of glass in his grand kaleidoscope called the church. That he is constantly turning and giving a new refraction of his glory as he shines through his people, who are finding new places of ministry, new opportunities of service, new opportunities to practice their gifts. As he shines through those gifts and through the beauty of this vast array of people called his church, and that church continually is shifting and changing, no two churches are going to look alike, just as no two kaleidoscopes are going to look alike And as it's almost like as soon as it shifts, you'll never get that same picture back. And the same is true with the church. It's like the church can be a vibrant expression of God's beauty, his love, his compassion, his goodness, his grace. And if the light of God is shining through us, it brings incredible beauty into the world around us. And it will entice the world to come experience it. But what we've done is we've let the stained glass serve as that view, that snapshot of the church, but in reality, without change, without movement, it's just stained glass. It's something beautiful. It's something. It's a. It's a hearkening to the things of the past. It's a. Met, it's really a metaphor of the church, right? Stained glass is a metaphor of the church. It's a something that used to be beautiful, vibrant, and alive, but now is just a museum, a legacy, a statement to something that happened in the past, rather than what god is doing today and i think the kaleidoscope concept is that christ is shining through a constantly changing church
0: so now i'm picturing a new church building and instead of stained glass having That's these it. round port <laughs> windows at the top with a moving kaleidoscope as yeah, the sun shines cool. through and presenting different scenes on the walls behind you you know constantly Better yet. It, that'd be interesting
1: Better yet, and see, this is the thing. Instead of sometimes, here's the sad part about stained glass, and this is true of the church as well. Stained glass is typically only enjoyed by the people on the inside, enjoying the sun shining through in. What if we were as intentional about shining out through the stained glass and capturing the beauty? Of, of the church, letting the church shine out to the city so that all of a sudden the city can enjoy the beauty and the vibrancy and the goodness of God from God shining through the church rather than just experiencing it on the inside. So yes, I agree with you. It'd be super cool if, if our state, we have an old building, we have a 120-year-old building that, that we meet in with beautiful round stained glass that, man, if it could be a vibrant expression of the kaleidoscope thing that I'm picturing to the world, man, that would be spectacular. But alas, we don't have the technology for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good though. I, I love the imagery there and I love the, the imagery and what it teaches that we should, because the light, the light is in us, right? And it would be, it would be shining out. But again, you'd have to change that stained glass into that moving kaleidoscope, which which I've always thought, if you get a, if you get a hundred people in the room for a worship service, likely you'll never have that exact same group in the room again, exactly the way they are, especially where they're at the where they're at that moment in life, and oh, yeah. how they receive the word that you share, yeah, based on everything that's going on in their life that day. You know, yeah. two years from now, you know, it'd be really sad actually if. Two years later, the exact same people found yep. themselves in the room again. You know, because it's always evangelism. changing and shifting.
1: Then obviously there was no evangelism if that was the case.
0: Yeah, true, true. So so this book, you you've already indicated that this book is a critique without being critical of the church in a number of different areas. And you've got chapter four that says a shifting landscape. You talk about Mm -hmm. postmodernism, globalism, urbanization, the information age. What idea do you want to pull out and share with our listeners that you remember from that chapter that was significant and that's still seven, six, seven years later, still significant?
1: Yeah. I think that this issue of navigating change, Uh, um, if you're still using the same tools that you learned when you first started into ministry for leading the church, then you're not growing. You're not changing with the changing times. What I mean by that is I'm not talking about getting away from using the Bible. Obviously the Bible, interestingly enough, there's certain things that remain constant. In other words, the North Star and the Southern Cross are still incredible navigation tools that, Uh, you can still use to navigate your way across a changing landscape in the same way scripture still serves as an immutable uh, tool that is never changes. It's, is not, you know, it's, it's, you can trust it. You can trust the word of God to help you navigate change. Um, But the same, but, uh, but if the methods you're using for doing ministry have not shifted or changed, um, man, you're, you're, you might as well be trying to use a roadmap on the ocean. Um, and this, a lot of this comes from Leonard Sweet. Dr. Leonard Sweet wrote a book, um, back in the early two thousand late, late 90s, early 2000s, um, that really challenged this idea and really he was introducing postmodernism to the church if you would at that time or post-christianity to the church and it was just interesting it's the one thing that's really shifted for me is recognizing we're no longer the home team and that was language that uh dr gary freeson used uh he was uh when he was at our church he was talking about how you used to be the church used to be the home team you know 50 years ago in America the church has not been the home team for over 30 years in America but we still continue to behave like we're the home team and if you know anything about sports you have to play the game differently when you're the away team than when you're the home team uh depending on the field depending on the whatever the environment and it's really true nowadays is that We expect to get the home team calls and then we get mad when we don't. And the reality is is that it's just, you're not the home team anymore. And, uh, I think that's the shifting landscape that so often, uh, we forget and we rail against post-Christianity, but I'm not sure, or post-modernism. I'm not sure that's a, I'm not sure post-modernism isn't good for the church. Um, I think it's, it just as persecution is good for the church I think in this situation, uh, postmodernism and globalization and uh, the information age is excellent for the church. It's wonderful, just as the printing press was good for the church, just as, uh, you know, the globalization through ships was good for the church and expanded the church and uh, grew the church, just as the Roman roads made it possible uh, for the gospel to go around the entire modern world at that time and the fact that they all use the same language at the time of Christ. Um, you know, everybody was learning in Greek was super helpful uh, for the church's message to go forth. And I think today we're in a unique crossroads of those three things. Again, urbanization, information age, and postmodernism, I think are all leading to the expansion of the church in the world today.
0: In that next chapter, Kurt, you talk about connecting the dots, mm-hmm. and I thought that was an interesting chapter title. <laughs> since in that you're talking about secularism, nationalism, uh, and the church, yeah. and you wrote this in 2016, maybe a little into 2017, and a lot has happened since then. Man, uh, so y- y- how have you navigated the last five years in your church, and how has your teaching? shifted and I'm wondering how have your people uh responded to your teaching?
1: Yeah. So Christian nationalism, uh when I labeled this, I mean when I was talking about Christian nationalism at this point, uh this is um yeah I, I read this now and it's almost eerie how I dare I say prophetic it was about what was about to transpire over the (laughs) night. Yeah. It was I I look at this now and I'm just like, it's almost um yeah, it was it was interesting. So I um I recently received an email from a woman in our church who uh has been in our church for almost eight years, I guess. And, um, she just made the statement. So she was from a very conservative back Christian, conservative background and, uh, and just the shift in her thinking. So, um, over the last particularly four years, well, six years. And, uh, I'm struck by this is that, you know, when, when the church gets in bed with politics Nothing good comes from that. I just have not seen anything good in my experience. And as I study church history, and I'm kind of a history nut in the sense that I'm a hobbyist, I'm not a historian, I'm a, ho- a Christian uh, history hobbyist. I am fascinated as I look over church history at how dangerous it is, even for when Luther um, made certain statements in order to get protection. Um, during the rise of Lutheranism and the Reformation, um, and even Calvin, for that matter. Um, It's amazing to me the concessions the church has to make with the world to get the blessings of the world um, are never a good thing, going back to the time of Constantine. It's just interesting to me how you, you just study that, and you're just like, why are we continuing to repeat the mistakes of the past? And it's because we don't study the mistakes of the past. And so we're doomed to repeat them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the thing that, so in that book chapter, it's really just, let me just say this. I was writing that chapter, um, in Germany, um, because I was, I was on sabbatical in Germany, writing this book. That was the point of my sabbatical is to write this book. And it was interesting. Each, uh, We would go to various museums, and it was fascinating to me to walk through a museum on fascism and Nazism that um, was in Nuremberg in light of this. And it's just fascinating to me. I don't know if you know this, but Hitler was elected by the Christian vote. Um, And that was what pushed him over the top was this conservative Christian vote because in the after he was elected many churches and many pastors and and priests in Germany were saying this we finally have a man after our own heart who doesn't drink who doesn't smoke who is um conservative and believes the same things that we believe and um yeah it's eerie to think through some of that so
0: when you say christian nationalism kurt could you simply define that for us Christian because we hear that term all the time and I'm convinced that most people don't really understand what it means when they hear it.
1: Yeah, it's this idea that it's it's this idea that we are a nation that is not only established on a Christian ideals but are also viewed as defenders of those Christian ideals and where the nation and the church are partnering together for the sake of the nation, meaning the, the expansion and the preservation of a specific nation.
0: Uh, so, not the expansion and preservation of the kingdom?
1: Correct. Yeah, at the expense of that. In many ways, Christian nationalism is this idea that my nation is the expression of God that God has for the world. And, and, uh, and, Regardless of what happens with the kingdom of God, the nation must be protected, the nation must be exalted. The nation is the 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 expression of of God in the world. Where you know God's gift to humanity. And though I believe the United States is a gift of God to humanity, I cannot say that it is that the United States is God's gift to humanity. It's a he, you know, certainly God causes the rise and fall of nations. And I believe England is a gift of God to humanity as well, as well as every other country could be. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's anytime you basically put your country as the defender of, <laughs> of the faith, and then you suddenly have to defend the country um, at the expense of the kingdom of God. And it, it it causes the conflict of values. And that's the struggle that I see in America today is that there's a conflicting value, um, conflicting values between Christian nationalism and the kingdom of God are not always, you know, we used to think that they were congruent at the very best.
0: G- um, give me an example. Where's an example where there's a conflict? Between um, Christian nationalism and the kingdom.
1: Okay. Um, the one that I'll give you one that got me in trouble and it continues to get me in trouble. Um the right to bear arms and 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 the kingdom of God uh from this perspective. So Jesus says, you know, if someone comes against you to take something from you and you are uh, you Someone comes into your home To take something from you You should offer them So if they come to take your TV You run after them and say Oh you forgot the DVD player You forgot the, the cable box as well Whatever uh, You forgot the Roku You forgot the You know don't forget this And you give them that as well That's what Jesus said But in America We say if someone comes into my home I'm going to shoot them dead on my front porch um, That's that's incongruent with Jesus' teachings. And so, and so it's that's the, and you hear a lot of Christians talk about self preservation and self protection and self defense and property defense and property protection. We're not talking about um, protecting our little ones, our children, and our, our and, and, and our spouse, our wife, we're talking about protecting our stuff and protecting your stuff at the expense of someone else's life is inconsistent with the, with the word of God, but is a high, high value in American um, rights and constitution, constitutional rights. Do I believe in the rights of bear arms? Absolutely. I do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that using that, the weapon a gun to protect your stuff is inconsistent with um, or even your own life for that matter is inconsistent with Jesus teachings about that.
0: My wife told me the other day that across the street from our niece's home in New York state, a car had smashed into the house across the street from them and they had been being chased because they were stealing catalytic converters off of vehicles. And so the cops were chasing them down the street, and they lost control and ran into the side of this house and took out basically the whole living room and whatnot. And my wife was asking the question, what kind of policies are in place for police officers who are in pursuit where if somebody's going to die because of the reckless chase, is it worth the punishment for stealing catalytic converters, you know, and in this case they literally ran into somebody's home and took out a wall and half of a room. And what if there were children in the room and what if, you know, family members were killed, is it really worth it because somebody stole a catalytic converter? So these are the kinds of questions, you know, that our culture is maybe grappling with, but I don't know, you, you started to sound a little un-American there. I know, and, and
1: here's the thing: is let me just say this. Uh, I need to follow up with this: is that I am not speaking about government here. <laughs> I believe in police force. I believe in a military. I believe in supporting them. I believe in that completely. Um, they bear the the rat the the sword of wrath, as it talks about in Romans chapter 13. For a reason, there's a reason why, and and I've been thinking about this a lot lately is there's a reason why military um, officers and soldiers and airmen and seamen don a uniform okay and why it's a it, if you are doing battle outside a uniform it's actually like um it you're you're engaging in an espionage at that point um which is fascinating to me that that's a that's a big deal um you could be executed immediately where if you're wearing a uniform, you're only you and, and you're taken captive, you're not supposed to be executed. It's only if you're not wearing a uniform that you can, you should, be, you know, according to the Geneva Convention or rules of warfare or whatever, that you can execute someone immediately for espionage, you know, because it once they're found guilty of espionage. And so there's a reason why they wear a uniform. There's a reason why a judge dons the 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 the, the their the robes. Robe. And, and in England, they put on a wig, right, is because and then they change. They actually put on in England when they're doing the sentencing, they put a different thing on, uh, like cap thing, uh, because they want to they're they're acting as an agent of the state, not as their personal as, as their individual. And the same with police officers. There's a reason why they wear uniforms and why they carry a badge, and declare that they're the police, because we, Jesus is not speaking to government when he's making those statements about turning the other cheek and giving up your cloak and your tunic as well, and and going the extra mile. He's not talking about government. I don't want a judge who just says, "Oh, oh, you know, you're sorry for raping that child." Okay, don't worries. We'll we'll just just don't do it again. We don't want judges to do that. We don't want police officers to be forgiving. Uh, They're agents of wrath for a reason. That's why they're clothed in that uniform for that moment. But as individuals, they have to act differently. Um, And so how, but we want judges who, if someone breaks into their home, they don't act as a judge in their home. That's not their job. Their job is to uh, perform their judge task when they're clothed with that responsibility and they act differently in their home. And all I'm saying is, is as a person, um, as an agent of the kingdom of God, um, I have to live according to that standard, uh, not according to some standard that man has imposed.
0: Do you think, Kurt, that your church family and your church leadership is ready for whatever comes in 2023 and
1: 2024? <laughs> uh, probably not. That's okay. It's change. And we just I think we're ready in the sense that we know where to go. Um, And I think I know where to go. And that is to the word of God and to the I think we can also look at church history and see how the church has responded in the past and what was effective and what wasn't. Um, And we have a great multitude of counselors around us of other church leaders that we can um, process through this together and get to that place where we can understand um, what it is that God has for us.
0: And you've got a chapter in here, Sacred Community and the Kaleidoscope, Racism, Ageism, and Segregation. What do you say in that chapter about those things?
1: Yeah, I think that the community, the Christian community, should transcend the barriers that society and culture put upon us. We're starting to see a little bit of a shift where, Um, No longer do we segregate ourselves according to uh, the color of our skin on a Sunday morning um, as much as we should. And and I just strongly believe that a local church should reflect its neighborhood. So, in other words, it should um, be an example of the people around them. So I don't think it's appropriate for a white church to be meeting in an Hispanic neighborhood. And I should say an Anglo church to be meeting in, a, in an Hispanic neighborhood If you're in an Hispanic neighborhood Why is it not have the Hispanic Flavor of the neighborhood um, In the church um, And the same is true with an Anglo I, I'm not sure it's good for <laughs> why, why do we have I, you got to be careful on this Because it's such a volatile subject nowadays uh, That when you talk about race um, I guess my question is Are you determining who you worship with based on race and culture or are you basing it on on are they my brother and sister in christ and and are we the family of god i mean that's really the essence of sacred community is viewing the church as the family of god with all its shapes and colors and sizes all together in one place i
0: mean is it true that birds of a feather want to flock together even if different kinds of birds live in the same tree
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting. I re- listened to a one of your podcasts uh that was on here. Uh, you replayed a podcast um from a a
0: Christina Cleveland. Somebody
1: with a PhD, multiple yeah. phd Yes, her. Um fascinating. Yeah, so it's just it's the reality is is that for the non-believer I get it that the non-believer wants to be around people who are like-minded in them, but that should not be in the church. Um, the believer should want to be with people who are, who act and think differently than they do, um, who are part of the family of God. It doesn't mean you every Sunday you're going to do that. Um, but we should embrace some of those pieces of uh, some of the people around us that uh, don't have that may think a little differently than we do or, look differently than we do but serve the same father um
0: yeah but if they're a different political party then they're they're not they're not the same they're not it's they're not (laughs) serving the same god that's the problem
1: yeah i think we're all (laughs) together is my thing i think we're i'm a much better i i i'm a much better republican when i'm hanging out with democrats and libertarians um and uh And I think we've, I think the same is true in the church is that we're much better followers of Christ when we're hanging out with people who are able to, they, we do this thing where we bring, we call it Midrash, but it's really where we, uh, we discuss the upcoming sermon text together and we, we just process it all together because everybody brings a different perspective of the text and in that that place, and it just saves a lot of time of going and reading different commentaries because so many people are bringing different commentators into that conversation. It's a beautiful, uh, I've many times been uh, challenged by people who, who are much younger than me who read the text in just a totally different way because they have different life experiences and they have different uh, filters that they're running it through. And I think the more the the diff, more filters you run it through, the faster you can get down to the true nugget of the scripture. That then you can um, apply it more effectively um, to the congregation. Yeah, and whole.
0: thanks for um, reminding us of that practice. And pastor, you can do this no matter what size church you're in. You just find two right. or three other people that that are that like to be talk about things on an intellectual level and on a scholarship level and on a spiritual, biblical level and uh, give them a little lead time, give them a passage and say, hey, let's just get together, let's talk about it, let's pick it apart, and uh, you can borrow somebody else's brains. But you were talking about Christina Cleveland. Um, Yeah, I thought she was just playing catch, and then she tossed a live grenade over to Saddleback Sam and just blew him out of the water. Do you remember that? She was like, this yeah, isn't do. right. Why would you want to have a church that everybody is homogenous, that everybody looks it's the right. same?
1: Totally. I, I wondered the exact same thing, um, about the church in general. Um, when I was reading purpose driven church, I was like, and I, and don't get me wrong. I th- I think that was a gift to the church in the nineties. Um, I just think we got to grow up. There's lots of things that I used when I was younger in ministry and, now that I've gotten older in ministry, I've realized, man, the new rate. And honestly, I really, I said this in the book. I think the new racism is a, is a generationalism if you would. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we throw older guys out to pasture and no longer count them as wise sages. Uh, just a dear friend of mine died last night. Um, and, and who was a pastor that I was, that I served on our executive committee Mm -hmm. with, uh, Larry Nelson. And, uh, man, I'm just like, I'm going to miss that man's wisdom in my life and his gentle love and compassion. And, and we shouldn't be throwing these, the older generations out and we shouldn't discount the younger generations. I remember, uh, uh, Barna made the statement in 2008 that he said, we have to boomers are going to have to figure out how to get out of the way and let millennials serve. And, um, I was like, man, now that I'm in this stage of life and I'm watching this happen, I'm like, man, isn't that the truth today is we're seeing that played out in the world today, that boomers are not letting go of their roles and responsibilities in the church and hand it off to the next generation. Do you realize that this next presidential election will likely be the first election in the history of the United States where we will have jumped an entire generation without having a president from that generation. And I thought that was fascinating because boomers, and it's actually not boomers unwilling to hand it off to millennials as much as boomers unwilling to hand it off to Gen X um, and let Gen X step into that role. But we're going to jump. theres It's likely that we will jump. From boomers to millennial, and in our in our presidency.
0: Well, that's a there's a prediction right there, Kurt. That we could
1: I'm that we could talk a lot happening. about,
0: <laughs> but we're not going to. That <laughs> well, that you. is so interesting. <laughs> Just, so in in writing this book, so you took some time, you spent some months, and you wrote this book. What's what was the biggest aha for you as you were writing it? So you you went into it, you were thinking kind of in one direction in an area. But then after you got into it and you started writing it, you realized, oh, wait, there's, there's a little bit of a different direction here and something that you really learned. You look back, you said, that that's the thing that I really learned writing that book.
1: Yeah, I think wrapping my, I, when I was able to put everything on paper and, and lay it all out while I put it on my computer, I realized, wow, I am an incarnationalist, not a sacramentalist. Mm. And So there's a chapter in there about this idea of incarnationalism versus sacramentalism and the distinction. And I made the decision from that point on that everything I did was going to be rooted in this idea that, um, there, there are sacred things in our world that we need to hold on to. Um, and not, but, and, We need to um, recognize that one of those things is that I am a holy person because Christ lives in me. I am counted as a saint because of Christ dwelling in me. And when I think about it from that perspective, and I think about his church as being a holy place because two or more gathered in his name, there he is with them. That makes that a holy uh, community, a sacred community. And therefore, the activities that I engage in and the activities the church engages in uh should be expressions of that holiness of Christ in us, that hope of glory, that light shining out through us as his works that he prepared beforehand for us to do, as his craftsmanship. And so I think that was just the aha moment is that wow, I am truly an incarnationalist. I do not and and so I've had to reorder my worship i've had to reorder my ministry i've had to reorder my church around this ideal this philosophy of ministry that is rooted in being an incarnationalist versus a sacramentalist so now
0: define the difference those the the two what what do you mean by incarnationalist and what do you mean by sacramentalist
1: so an incarnationalist believes that there's no external thing that makes me holy an incarnationalist believes that a sacramentalist believes that there's external things that are naturally holy that make me holy. In other words, a sacramentalist would say there's one day of the week that's holier than other days of the week. A sacramentalist would say there's one meal that's holier than other meals. A sacramentalist would say there's um, one uh, <laughs> there's 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 a priest there there's there, the the pastor is is more holy than the congregant um a sacramentalist would say there's a building that is holier that is holier than other buildings um, a sacramentalist would say that there's a holy land versus the rest of the land uh that there's places that god there's pilgrimages that are holier than other pilgrimages um that all of that where i would say an incarnationalist believes that wherever God chooses to reveal himself, that is a holy place. Wherever God is, that is a holy place. Wherever uh, Whoever God is in, that is a holy person. Um, whatever meal that God is invited into, that is a holy meal. I like it. So in other words, I hold the view, because I'm an incarnationalist, that every meal that I share with others in the name of Christ is Holy Communion.
0: Is Holy Communion.
1: And so when I break bread with a brother or sister and I say, Lord, bless these elements to my body, I follow it up now. Since then, I've shifted and I now always end it. May we always be mindful of your sacrifices. We break bread together. And therefore, it puts that place. And then I also followed up with, man, am I, before I eat, am I harboring any bitterness towards my fellow brother? Um, am I partaking in this with a clean conscience that I'm walking in forgiveness and living in forgiveness? I think we have a lot more skinny Americans if we were incarnationalists because we wouldn't eat until we had gone and made things right. We'd leave our sacrifice on the table and go make things right with our brother and then come back to the
0: community. And you table. wouldn't eat in an unworthy manner.
1: Correct. now I think that where eating in an unworthy manner is one being selfish and eating it all to keeping it all to yourself, and the second piece is you know harboring unforgiveness towards your fellow fellow man. Yeah, yeah. particularly fellow believer.
0: In that middle part of First Corinthians eleven, before it gets into "for I have received," etc., etc., where they they had allowed the culture, the caste system of the day, to infiltrate their gatherings. Oh, you know, and you had. Some people eating fine at the table and other people sitting out by the fire without that much food, but they were calling all that, you know, eat, sharing in the Lord's Supper. And, and that's yeah. exactly what we were just talking about earlier as we allow the culture to dictate how we do church and how we see ourselves as the church.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just the idea that if I am a saint, then— Everything I do is worship, you know, so whether I'm having a conversation on a podcast about Jesus or whether I'm drinking coffee with a friend in a coffee shop or whether I'm playing soccer or sitting in a hospital bed, that should be done as an act of worship before God. And because of who I am and because of who dwells in me, not because of where I am or the specific activity that I'm doing, um, all of it should be holy worship before God. And That's rooted in my view of incarnationalism. And so that was the aha moment for me is like, oh, my gosh, this is if I could go back, you know, keeping the church from becoming a museum might be better off saying, you know, keeping the church incarnational maybe um, would probably be a, a thing. But I think that's how we keep the church from becoming a museum is by allowing Christ to be in us, the hope of glory. Um, doing the works that he prepared beforehand for us to do because he is the master craftsman of the church and his people.
0: That's awesome, Kurt. So let's land the plane because I have been ringing it out of you for the last hour and a half. And uh, I want you to just speak to uh, pastors of small churches. And you've been a pastor for almost 30 years probably. And speak to the heart of the pastor. What would you like to share?
1: Yes. I love the church and I love ministers of the church and because they, without the ministers of the church, we have no ministers in the church. So keep up the good fight. And my challenge to you is this, I have allowed way too much comparison, contrast and competition, those three C's to influence my ministry over the last 30 years. And I so wish if I could go back that somebody had told me early on, stop comparing yourself to others, stop living in contrast to others and definitely stop living in competition with other churches and other pastors and even those within your church. Um, It is such a thief of joy. It's such a thief of identity. Um, And just understand that you, yeah, you are a shard of glass that God claimed off the dung heap. But you know what's beautiful about that? He washed you. He bought you. First, he bought you. He washed you. And then he placed you in a perfectly good kaleidoscope that his light might shine through you. And so my challenge to pastors everywhere is just stop trying to be a different piece of glass um and quit comparing yourself or contrasting yourself with another piece of glass that you think is holier than you and let Jesus shine through you because in that he is, that you can be you personally as a pastor can be the vibrant expression of Christ as you find your place in his church and I just hope that pastors just stop living in that place of comparison contrast and com- competition. Because it's about Jesus, not about that anyway. I hear pastors a lot in circles when they get together. Sorry, I'm gonna. This may be meddling, and feel free to edit this out, Jeff. Hmm. Uh, but I hear pastors sometimes get so consumed with telling their story, like like instead of just listening to another pastor's story about what's happening in their church, they immediately want to jump in and start telling what's going on in their church is as like a statement of not, it may not even be done from a competition side of things. It may be done with, I empathize with you because I I know what you're going through, which is just, we all know that we're not supposed to do that in a counseling setting because all pastors have been trained not to do that in counseling. Oh, I know what you're going through, but we do it all the time when we get together as pastors with each other. And it's because of this comparison, contrast and competition Thing that has been so ingrained into us, and I just say, you know, uh, just listen to one another and be with one another, because that's you're representing Jesus in that moment. So be with them. I mean, this is Emmanuel, right? That Christ, God with us, is what we're celebrating this time of year. Just practice that incarnational. I'm just going to be with you. I guess it's a little more existential in this moment, and not be thinking about what else I got to do or how my story compares with your story and just be with you in your story.
0: Perfect. Kurt, thanks so much. You're at harvestdowntown.org. And do you have a website that you'd like to share?
1: Uh, No, that's the only website. I mean, the only thing is Kaleidoscope. You can pick it up on Amazon. Honestly, if you can't find it on Amazon, you can email me at Kurt at harvestdowntown.org. And love to answer any questions. Uh, if you want to send me hate mail, that's fine, too. It's just an idea that I would love to have the conversation. And uh, if you want to pick up, a, I can get you a copy as well. I would love to just see the leaders have a, process, a good conversation around what are we about as a church? And really just ask the hard questions. What are we doing that we're not supposed to be doing? What are the things that we should be doing? And what are the things that only we can accomplish in our community? And if we could just have those conversations with our leaders, I think Kaleidoscope was originally written for pastors of churches, primarily pastors of small churches, to ask those hard questions about what is the church, what should the church look like, and how can we be the vibrant expression of Christ in our, in our community.
0: Kurt, thanks for joining me today and encouraging pastors. Thank you Jeff for all you do really seriously thank you so much. Well there you go everybody Kurt Trempert. Hey when I first ran into him I think it was at some conference in a lobby somewhere. He's the type of guy at least for me anyway that you you don't even know him. You just walk by him and you just want to bump him. You just want to give him a little bit of a shove and then and then get a conversation going. He just welcomes He welcomes conversation and interaction and relationship, and it's really no surprise to me that he's been where he's at for 23 years, and Lord willing, it's fun to see pastors at a church for a long, long time. He'll be there for years to come. Pastor, I hope that in this episode, you've grabbed something, just something that will help you to just see your church, your ministry, yourself as a pastor, yourself as a believer, just a little bit differently because Kurt talked about a number of theological perspectives and theologically nuanced ideas and thoughts. And I love being able to provide these conversations to you on this podcast. Hey, tomorrow, actually, the day after this podcast comes out, I'm going to spend the day with Johnny Craig and uh, I'm hoping that we have opportunity to do some recording, but he's just moved into a new ministry and I'm going to get to see his church and just spend some time with him. So I'm looking forward to that. Pastor, thanks for joining us today and I'll see you next week on the 200 Churches podcast.